Brain Injury Today is sponsored by the Washington State Traumatic Brain Injury Council and produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. I try to tell people what my disabilities are, be like, hey, could you help me find something in the store? I'm blind, so I have trouble finding stuff. I think one of the best ways to go about like helping with ableism is asking, do you need help? But in a polite manner, just don't go up to somebody who's struggling and be like, oh, do you need help? Because <laughs> I've gotten like those people where they're just like, oh my God, do you need help? And it's like, no, screw you. Like, yes, I did need help, but I don't want it from you. Welcome to Brain Injury Today, your connection to the brain injury community. I'm your host, Sabrina Bonaparte, board member of the BIAWA. According to the most recent CDC data, 61 million adults in the U.S. live with a disability. That amounts to 26% of the population, or approximately one in four adults. Disabilities are physical and neurodiverse, and the range of disability experienced by individuals in the brain injury community are vast. Many of those disabilities also might be invisible, meaning they're not always apparent and can go unnoticed. All individuals in our society are subjected to ableism, but the disability community is disproportionately affected by it. Ableism is simply defined as prejudice and discrimination toward individuals simply because they are classified as disabled, regardless of whether their impairments are physical or mental, visible or invisible. Ableism can surface in many different forms. For example, when the only entrance to a building has stairs and no ramp, it might be challenging for wheelchair users to navigate getting into a building. Another example is a website that does not contain alternative text on images, so anyone who uses a screen reader cannot get the context the pictures provide. I want to get into talking about how ableism has affected people in our community. I have some wonderful people in our community that I would love to bring into the conversation. Um, so we have Seth Baronian and Alan Baronian here. Hello. Hi, Seth. Would you like to introduce yourself, Seth? Yes, I'm Seth Baronian. I have both physical and invisible disabilities due to a brain injury I sustained 10 years ago. Would you be comfortable sharing with us what some of your physical disabilities are that you have that have made you be excluded from things? Oh, 100%. I have no issues. So I'm legally blind. I have no peripheral vision, so pathfinding is very hard for me. And also, I I can no longer drive because of my vision loss. I also have drop foot, where my left foot won't dorsiflex, so I have to wear either an ankle foot orthotic, which is a brace, or an electrical stu- stimulation unit on my knee to walk properly. Due to that vision loss, I have poor balance, and not very I'm not very good with spatial awareness. So I bump into a lot of things or trip on stuff. And yeah, so those those are probably my biggest physical disabilities. Thank you, Seth. And Alan, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Seth's dad. Uh, we live in the Seattle area. And so we've seen the issues that are being brought to the fore now uh, firsthand, uh, unfortunately. Uh, nobody signs up for this, but this is what we've got and happy to be here. Thank you, Alan. Yes, I completely agree. No one signed up for this and we are here. So it's all about how we deal with it moving forward. Oh, miss anything, Dad? 
No, no, that's the main stuff. I, and I think some of the balance is just simply from the, the brain injury. And then I guess I would just add just um, the, what's called frontal lobe injury, which he had, and most seems like most traumatic brain injuries do. It, it really affects his decision-making and his oh, yeah. ability to to look at a situation and go, wow, this is dangerous. I better avoid it. Or being online and and there's a predator out there or someone that's fishing and to realize, wow, the red flag. So I think that that in some ways may be the, one of the toughest disabilities you deal with. I would definitely agree with that. Just like my decision-making has definitely gotten better, but like people come up to me like, Hey, you want to do this drug? And like, before I can think, Oh, I shouldn't smoke weed. I'll be like, Oh sure. And take a hit of the weed and be like, I shouldn't have done that. And it's just hard. So trying to keep myself out of situations where I can screw up. As a parent and you have a kid, you're, you always have to decide when do I step in and when don't I step in? You know, when do I let them just fail or flounder? They got to figure this out, you know, and every parent has a different approach on that spectrum, of course. Um, you know, you have the hard knock parents and the helicopter parents that don't want them to have any problems. I, I really believe that's tough, tougher with the disabled because and I'm talking about more now, you know, mental injury or mental disabilities or brain injury is you just don't know, wow, if I leave them to their own devices, they'll figure this out or they will never, ever figure this out no matter how hard they try. And it's, it's, it's damaging to let them just kind of keep beating against that. That's a really tough one as a caregiver to know when to step back and when to step in. And, you know, sometimes Seth, cause he's like every one of us, <laughs> he has moments where he could do something he doesn't want to because it's easier to have someone else do it, you know? And Oh, definitely. Anyway. Yeah, I agree. It is very hard to know, especially early on in someone's recovery. You want people to feel as if they have independence and that they have control over their recovery and you're not doing everything for them. But sometimes people do need help, right? But it's hard to know when to help. It's easy when someone asks you for help, right? But Alan, what you described is a little bit deeper than that. It's should I maybe tell him not to do that? I don't want to overstep, but is his brain guiding him in a direction that he really wants to go? I'm not sure, right? And so those mm -hmm. are the really difficult ways to go uh, when you're a caregiver. Obviously, I'm not a caregiver of a child. It's my husband, but I can definitely relate to what you're saying there. And Seth, question for you. Yes. Can you describe any instances where you think you might have experienced ableism? Oh, uh, definitely. So I've got a couple that come to mind right away. One of them is I had a best friend in high school who we hadn't seen each other for a couple years after we graduated and he got married. And I didn't get invited to his wedding or anything. And a couple of my other best our other best friends did. And the reason I didn't get invited was he hadn't seen me in seven or like five or six years. And also I was disabled. So I couldn't get down there. Like my friends would have had to take care of, take it would have had to take care of me and like get me places. Cause I can't drive. So that was, that was pretty rough. Also in the job market, I have definitely seen it constantly. The only two places I've got, or uh, I've gotten three jobs post brain injury. One of them was at a gas station in bend, which was pretty easy to get. 
But the other two, back when I was living in Seattle, I've only been able to get work at Value Village and then Goodwill because they work with disabled people. I've applied to, when I was looking for jobs, I probably applied to 50 places, got three interviews, no callbacks. And I feel like a lot of that is due to my both physical and mental disabilities. That's really unfortunate. And I, I, I know you're not alone. Um, when Brandon first had his accident, we went to a local gym and he, he did water aerobics, mostly with a lot of the elderly population because it was in the middle of the day and it was really easy and really nice on his joints to be able to get in the water to do some exercises. And the, uh, the teacher quit. And a lot of, and he had filled in for that teacher a few times. And a lot of the members of the class wanted him to take over as teacher. Uh, so he applied for the job. And as part of that job, they wanted him to drive to another location. But at this point, he couldn't drive yet because he was so close to his injury. And he was like, well, I can only teach at the location near my house. And they said, well, sorry, you can't have the job. We're not used to dealing with people with with physical disabilities in this work. Mm. And that was the end of it. And, you know, he didn't need the job for money. He actually wanted the job just to bond with, you know, the people that were in the class with him. But it was really unfortunate. And this was uh, maybe six months after his accident. So we experienced ableism in the employment world really quickly, just like you, Seth. And that's really unfortunate that, that that's the case. And, and it shouldn't be that the only way that you can get a job is if a company that you're working for works with the disabled community. That's that, that right there is ableism at its finest, that only, only places where they're sort of already set up to work with you are going to work with you. That's, that's exactly describing ableism in, in the workplace. Another thing is I've had a couple people from my church like recommend I work at places for the sole purpose of they have like a big hand in the disability community. Don't have any idea if I've even gone to that company or have any interest in it, but they're like, oh, this would be a great fit for you. And I'm like, but it wouldn't. Well. I'm sure that doesn't make you feel great. No. Yeah. I personally think we're going to see you as president of the United States one day. So don't worry. You'll get there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's my that's my goal. That's my end goal. Okay, good. Well, we'll make sure it happens. And then you can help fix ableism within our society as your number one campaign promise. There you go. Sounds good. Thank you for all of that, Seth. Thank you for being so open and sharing your experiences with us. I know that's probably not an easy thing to talk about. Um, Alan, I, I want to bring you into the fold as well and ask, have, have you noticed anything different from what Seth is seeing? I mean, Seth has obviously brought up a lot of good examples as a caregiver. Have you noticed things beyond what Seth is mentioning? And also sort of, how does that make you feel when you see ableism and at times there's nothing you can do to fix it? What, what, what is, what sort of emotions does that elicit for you? Yeah, that's the part one of the question was, you know, other things that I've seen. I think he he talked about some of the social um, ableisms. And I think maybe the hardest thing for me, and I think for us, I can speak for my wife, Sherry, too, is that um, when you see him being excluded from things that normally he would be included in, 
um, you know, he's got both mental and physical disabilities. And so him not being able to do a lot of the things, he was an, really an incredible athlete and just was an active kid when he got hurt. And he's still active and he's still a good athlete, but he gets excluded from a lot of things simply just because he can't do it. And, you know, any parent uh, watching their kids struggle, it's tough. And then I think, you know, having done both, um, when you see someone with disabilities and when you're uh, a caregiver for them and you watch them struggle, it's, I think, even tougher. And, you know, this isn't a, I'm not a martyr, but I just think it's tougher because you don't know that you see the end. You know, when your eighth grader struggles in math, you go, you know, they're going to be fine. You'd love to see them not struggle, but they're going to be fine. And I think when people have disabilities, you, you don't know. You really don't know what the future is going to hold. So, and I, you know, that what I struggle with a little bit is just the real subtle ableisms. You know, the obvious ones I think are easier to deal with, but it's some of the subtle things. Just like Seth alluded to, it's, wow, you, this would be really good for you because you're disabled. He's like, well, maybe it would be, but maybe I have no interest in that. So, uh, yeah, those are tough. I think maybe the social, the social um, integration and, and the isolation that can happen, which is, I think, really common in the disabled, is maybe the toughest struggle I have to watch. Yeah, Alan, I can definitely relate to everything you said. and. Um... You brought something else up earlier that I want to address, which is kind of the more subtle um, as microaggressions, I guess we could call them, towards ableism. So I think in our colloquial language, we use a lot of that. So people will say mm -hmm. like something, for example, of like, oh, I misspelled that word because I'm dyslexic. Well, you're not actually dyslexic. And people who have dyslexia really do have issues with spelling and you shouldn't minimize that, right? Or, or like, I clean my kitchen like four times because I'm OCD, right? Well, again, you're you're kind of misappropriating what OCD actually is, and not everybody who has OCD wants everything totally clean, right? That's not something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or um, and Seth, I'm almost certain you've probably gotten this one before because I've heard it happen to Brandon quite a bit when people say, "Oh yeah, I forget things all the time too. I'm just forgetful." When the forgetfulness is actually because of your brain injury. I get that all the time. And whenever anybody says that to me, I'm just like, well, excuse me. I'm like legally forgetful. <laughs> yes. You can say I have tests that prove <laughs> that yeah, I am I forgetful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's something that happens a lot. And it's a lot of times people, it's just part of language or they're trying to relate to you and maybe it's not meant to be aggressive or meant to be a microaggression, but it just kind of comes out that way and it doesn't always help. So I'm trying to be more cautious in the language that I use and the language that other people use around me to just kind of say things a little bit better so that it doesn't impact people quite as much. I think that's a huge issue with like the youth and even older people today is people don't understand that what they are saying is offensive. So a lot of time, if I'm somebody's around me or like, if I'm out in public and somebody says something that's like, Oh, I'm so OCD. I actually try to stop and be like, I, as a disabled person, no, you are not. Unless you've been clinically diagnosed with OCD, you have no idea what it's like. And that's like a 
that's something I've started recently trying to do a little bit more often because I've been, no I think I've just been noticing it more because I've been talking a lot about ableism. But yeah, so that's something I try to like correct people, but like, uh, do you really know what you, what you're saying? Right. Agreed. And I think sometimes too, some of the language that comes out that I hear a lot, um, people say you suffer with brain injury or somebody suffers with hearing loss. And again, <laughs> you're not suffering, right? It has affected your life or, or, you know, it's impacted your life, but you're not necessarily suffering. So I think just the way that you, that people word it. Yeah. That's something else. When people, I absolutely despise, like when I tell somebody about my injuries and they're like, Oh, I'm so sorry. It's like, you had nothing to do. You had nothing to do with it. And yes, I would have liked to not get my brain injury, but I actually feel like I've been blessed by my brain injury. Cause I've come to know so many amazing people and things I would have never known. Yes. Life is much harder for me, but just the fact that I can continually see improvements in myself is like so encouraging. And if I would have never been disabled, I would have never had these experiences. I agree. That's, that's beautiful, Seth. And so Alan, I'd like to ask you, Seth has already talked about how he's an ally to other people by basically saying, no, you're not OCD. Please don't use that language. What, what sorts of things have you done to be an ally to Seth and others when you spot ableism? Can you think of any instances? One of the most obvious ones is Seth injured him, got injured when he was riding a longboard, a skateboard without a helmet. And we still see kids riding skateboards without helmets. So one of the, the most obvious ones is stopping and, and in a very respectful way saying, wow, let me tell you my story. Or if Seth's yes. with us, let me tell you his story. And, you know, we're not trying to be a bossy adult, but wow, this can really impact your life. So that's kind of, that's first and foremost. Agreed. Yeah. I think maybe the biggest thing is just what Seth was alluding to until you kind of walk in the shoes. You know, there's a difference, obviously, between empathy and sympathy. And so when you've walked in uh, watching Seth go through his struggles, um, it's trying to help folks without pandering to them and um, really asking, hey, is there something I can do versus I'm just going to bust in and do this thing for you. and they don't want it. There's a there's a lady in our in our neighborhood and she's in an electric wheelchair and she walks her dog in her wheelchair. And we've gotten to know her and, and when we talked to her, she said it's kind of frustrating because people always want to help or help me get up this hill or do this thing. And she goes, This is what I do. I've been doing this for a long time. I don't need the help. And she, you know, even though she appreciates the intent, it kind of really bugs her so that it, these are just ways of learning, just like you've talked about with Brandon, is you see things and go, you don't know that I'm hurting right now. You don't know that I'm suffering and, and you know, maybe ask. So that, that, that's probably the biggest thing. I wish I had something more insightful, but those are the, the biggest things that come to mind when you ask that. Yeah. And you had a great segue. One thing I wanted to talk about was how to be an ally, how to help. And I think some of the big things, big takeaways you've already mentioned, which is if you see somebody with a disability, just don't assume that they need your help. If they ask for your help, you may give them your help. In fact, you should if you feel comfortable doing it, but also follow their instructions, right? So don't just say, oh, I know how to help you and just do things for them. If they say, 
I need you to help me up this stair. Can you please just take my bag and I'll walk? Then don't help them walk up the stairs. Take their bag and let them walk up the stairs, right? So just things like that, being able to just listen to people. I will say, and on the subject of listening to people, listen to people like Seth, listen to people like Brandon, listen to everybody with an invisible disability. If they are telling you that they're having issues, always take them seriously. Do not minimize what they're saying. Don't tell them that they're making it up. Please do not ever call them crazy. That is a horrible way. That's ableism at its finest. That is how you can help people with invisible disabilities. That's my number one thing. Listen and do what they ask. I just wanted to say thank you so much because due to my vision loss, I have hard times finding things in stores a lot of the time. Like I'll like be walking kind of aimlessly up and down the aisles like where is, okay, to be honest, it's most likely where's the candy because I eat way too much. But you see my dad laughing and smiling because he knows that's true. But it's actually really cool because I've had a couple, I've had like a lot of this actually. I think because it's the neighborhood, a lot of people know me, but they'll be like, hey, do you need help? That's, I think, one of the best ways to go about like helping with ableism is asking, do you need help? But in a polite manner, just don't go up to somebody who's struggling and be like, oh, do you need help? <laughs> but it's just like, I get a lot of, because I've gotten like those people where they're just like, oh my God, do you need help? And it's like, no, screw you. Like, yes, I did need help, but I don't want it from you. Another thing I do just being a disabled people is I try to tell people what my disabilities are. Be like, hey, could you help me find something in the store? I'm blind, so I have trouble finding stuff. It's also cool just to shout out to Goodwill where I work. My managers are super accommodating because I suffer from severe migraines where they will let me take a slightly longer break or leave work early or not come into work if I'm having a bad enough migraine. And like they work around, I get clonus, which is an uncontrollable muscle spasm in my legs. And so I have a chair at my register that I can sit on. So I also don't risk falling over. And so just like, what Goodwill is doing is absolutely amazing because when I got the job, they did a long interview asking me what all my disabilities were, what they meant for my job, my employment, how they could go about helping me. And that was just so nice to get in like a professional setting where it's an actual job. And I know they're known for working with disabled people, but I wish the disability or disabled community could see more instances like that in every job or situation. Yeah, Seth, you bring up a really good point. And one thing I'd like to say is if you're a manager or you're you're an employer and you have employees, one way that you can help employees like Seth, you don't necessarily have to have a really long interview where you make people disclose what they need. In Seth's case, that was correct. And I'm glad that that happened. But a lot of people are not comfortable just disclosing And so if that's the case and you're a manager, you can ask your team, hey, I sent out a survey. I want to know how everybody in the room works best. What's your what's your working style? How do you work best? And that way you're not asking people to disclose their disabilities, but you're kind of you're not singling people out. Exactly. And then everyone can benefit from that. So I think that's a great way to do that. Yeah, I really like that. That is I like that better than mine. No, yours is great too. Every situation is different. So, and I'm glad that your employer took the time to do that. That's fantastic. Most will not. So you're definitely an outlier. 
And I will say too, uh, another way that we can all help and the Brain Injury Alliance is doing this is with laws, passing laws, litigation. These are the things that we can do to help the community as a whole. But I will say, if you're going to work on passing a law or setting policy, always, always include people with disabilities in those conversations. This is not something that you should just go ahead and decide for everybody else what you're going to do for the company or what you're going to do for the state. Every time you make a policy, you need to include, always include people with disabilities, always include the people who will be affected by the policies. So I will say that's another way that you can help. I want to wrap things up, but in doing so, I have a couple more questions um, for both Seth and Alan. If you were to meet somebody who just recently had a brain injury, what advice would you give them? Okay. So this one, I've actually like partnered up with newly brain injured kids through the BIAWA, which I think is an absolutely amazing service you guys provide. Because I remember for the longest while, I didn't want to go to any support groups. I think because I was just denying that my brain injury had happened. But my sister really worked on like emailing, like I can't remember, I think it was Brandon and stuff about me joining the group. And I finally did. And so if I was telling, I actually just recently told somebody who came through work who was telling me about a brain injury he had a couple years ago. I told him about the BIAWA and how much amazing stuff and support they have. But probably my biggest recommendation to anybody who just recently got a brain injury and is dealing with all the horrible emotions and suicide wants, stay strong and continue. I know that sounds pandering, but the reason I am where I am today, and I'm a very bright and positive, happy person, and the only reason I am that way is because I stuck through the rough parts and I realized, like, yeah, I can't do what I used to be able to do. But that's okay because I can do so much more new stuff. And you just have to find things that like bring you a lot of peace and healing. Like in the hospital, I think the two therapies that helped me heal the most were music and art therapies. And so you have to find just like your groove. Like I love helping people and making people feel better. Just yeah, find what you are really good at and just pursue it with all your heart. That's wonderful, Seth. Thank you for that. And Alan, either for you, you could talk to a caregiver or you could talk to somebody who's recently sustained a brain injury. What would you say? Yeah, I, I, you know, I was thinking about it when you asked that question. And I, I think it, to me, it gets divided up into, into periods of time. Because, you know, when someone's newly injured, it is so overwhelming. And I don't think there's a lot, you can't come in. This is, this would be a perfect time to uh, talk about ableism. You, you could come into this situation like a bull in the China shop and you've got to do this, this, and this. And all they're trying to do is get through the day. Um, so early on, I would tell them both the caregivers and the, the person that's injured to just be patient and give yourself grace because it's so frustrating because you, were this able person and now you are disabled and, and, you know, there are all, there's a whole spectrum of the disabilities, but boy, just be patient. It's a marathon. We were told that early on and you don't want to hear that, but it's true. And it's, I think you can tell them that in a sensitive way that, wow, just stick with this. It's, you know, you're, you're in it for the long haul. Um, and then as they start getting through the early phase, I would agree with Seth is, reaching out to groups and other people in the brain injury community, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, you don't want to label, well, I'm 
I'm going to be better. So I'm not going to be one of those brain injured person. Well, you know, maybe we know some folks that have really had remarkable recovery, but you still can reach out and get involved in the community. Um, maybe the biggest thing is, or two things is don't retreat from society. That's such a huge problem. And it's hard. I mean, that's, it's easy to say. And that probably is one of the toughest things to do with a brain injury is to, to stay involved and to stay, um, Oh, uh, out in the community as opposed to just retreating to your house or your apartment and kind of being done. And then, um, advocate for yourself. You, you gotta, you gotta speak up. It's easy to, I think it's easy for a lot of people to get, uh, overrun anyway. And I think when you have a disability, whether it's physical or mental or TBI, um, it's easy to, easier to get overrun. So, you know, advocate for yourself, speak up. And then the caregivers really have to do that. Speak up for those you're taking care of. Yeah. Agreed. So my dad was saying advocate for yourself. I know for me, due to my frontal lobe injury and the other types like style of brain injury, a lot of the time it's very hard for me to advocate for myself or I don't realize I'm being slighted. So finding somebody in your community or like finding a good caregiver. Luckily, I had my brain injury at the time where my parents got stuck with me. <laughs> But they have just um, having them as like my backbone support has been like key to my recovery. Because they help me advocate for myself in instances where I don't realize that I should be advocating for myself. That's great, Seth. Yeah, I totally agree. And everybody needs a good advocate for sure. And if you if you're a caregiver and you're struggling or you want some advice, Alan and I are both here. We're both board members. We'd love to speak with you. We'd love to help. We got through it because we met other caregivers who were more experienced than we were, and they helped us through it. So anyone who needs to, to reach out, please do. Seth, Alan, thank you both so much for being here. It was a wonderful conversation. And you make our community such a rich place and I'm very, I feel very fortunate to know both of you and have you both as part of my life. Thank you very much. That means a lot. Of course. Thanks, Sabrina. Really appreciate it. And I appreciate you too. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Brain Injury Today. If you want to get in touch with our guests, you can find that information in the show notes for this episode. Please be sure to follow Brain Injury Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Please rate and review the show in your favorite podcast app and share the podcast with your family and friends. And as always, you could find support by calling the Brain Injury Alliance of Washington at 877-982-4292 or visiting BIAWA.org. Remember, you are never alone. We'll see you next time on Brain Injury Today.